Before we begin this episode, I want you to know that there is going to be some depictions of violence and abuse. So if that is a particular sensitivity for you, or you have children that are listening, it may be wise to skip this episode. This is Esther, and for five weeks, it is my privilege to share her story with you. My name is Eddie Koffeltz. This is The New Activist, a podcast brought to you by International Justice Mission that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. For this series and for this five weeks, those front lines are in Ghana, in Africa, on the shores of Lake Volta. Two quick programming notes before we get started. First, this episode is attached to the previous episodes. So you really should go back and start at episode one for this one to make any sense. In addition, there are some thicker Ghanaian accents in this episode. Just keep listening. I'll make sure that it all makes sense for you. Where we left our last episode, our very brave friend Jeffrey had been rescued from the island and the moment he was rescued turned around and said there are others on the island and we have to find them. And so he made a list. And one of the names on that list was Esther. I asked Jeffrey if he was scared to go back to the island because, you know, <laughs> I would have been. I was just scared. <laughs> you just went? Mm, just went. Very brave. When I went, people were calling my name, giving me all sorts of insults, but I don't care. Why? Why were they giving you insults? Uh, because we are their source of their income, so... So the... <laughs> <laughs> well, before we got interrupted there, I can tell you that I was sitting just a few feet from Jeffrey looking into his eyes. And when I asked him if he was scared and he said that he was not scared, I can affirm he was definitely not scared. But what I don't know that he anticipated was the pushback that he was going to get from the fishermen and the people that were holding Esther captive. More on that day and on the fishermen's reaction is Peter. He was on the boat with Jeffrey as they returned to the island. And what were you thinking that you would see on this island? What were you, what were you prepared to see when you got there? We, well, we were prepared to see kiss, but we were also prepared to see attacks from fishermen. Yeah. Attacks from the fishermen? Fishermen, yes. So the fishermen will, will be violent? Yeah, we, we believe so, they'll be violent. Because uh, they knew, you know, we went a day before, we went and picked Jeffrey and some other two guys. And so going there the second time, we believe that, we thought that they will, they will come together to resist that from taking the remaining kids from there. Why would they come together and why would they do that? Why would they be so upset that you're taking, the, that you're rescuing the kids from there? I think they, 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 their belief is that, they, one, they've not done anything. They are using their own children or they are using children for fishing and we are taking them away from them. So they will not allow us to pick the children. And they don't understand where, actually they don't understand where we are picking the children. So these fishermen really and actually believe 
and, and this may be a question you don't know that don't know, but like because you can't read their mind. But do they really believe that it, what they're doing is justified? For them, it's justified. It's normal for them using children for fishing. To them, it's normal. That's confusing and hard to understand because you and I yeah. could never own a child and keep them enslaved. So how do they make them? How do they make the mental jump? To being okay with using children for labor. To, to them, to them, to them, they have also gone through the same process and become fishermen, boat masters, and in in our world, in part of our world, being with somebody going through that, they see it as just a trait you are passing on to the person. That is what they think. They think that he's learning, and tomorrow he'll become a boatmaster. So they don't see it as an issue. But were these boatmasters also taken from their family? They've also, yeah, they've also taken from their families. They go there and grow, and they become boatmasters themselves. I shared that little tangent that Peter and I went on, not because I wanted to elicit any sympathy for the people that are holding Esther captive, but to really show how important it is on so many levels that we work to end slavery. Because if these children stay on the island, there is a chance that they become the people who end up perpetuating the violence themselves. It is a vicious and difficult cycle to understand, but one that we get the opportunity to break as we work together to support IJM. Our story continues now with Jeffrey, Peter, IJM staff, and also the local police on the island. There is some measure of heated conversation between the police and the slave owners. And meanwhile, Jeffrey and the IJM staff begin to look for the children on Jeffrey's list. I asked Esther about this, and she didn't really want to talk about it. And of course, I was not going to push her to talk about it. But I will read to you from Esther's case file. Here is what we know on the official account of what happened that day. It reads, On the day when IJM and police arrived, Esther had just finished cooking. Her master's son told her to go and hide, so she hid in the bush all afternoon. So when the slave owners see the boats in the distance on the way, the boats that are familiar to them at this point, the boats that are going to take what they feel is their property away, they tell the children to hide, and Esther goes and hides in a bush, which is basically a forest. Here is Perpetual, Esther's caseworker. They stayed in the bush for a very long time. It's the, it's the only community when you enter, when you cross the lake and get there, it's the only community. So when you are coming, they are able to spot and they know strange faces. They are able to tell that these are strangers. And normally, because we also have uh, reflectors, the, uh, how do you call it? The life, the, jacket. the life jackets, yeah. That easily <laughs> gives them a sign that these are not uh, community people. So quickly seeing that and having the knowledge of what happened the previous day where uh, Geoffrey was uh, rescued, they sensed that it was a team that was coming back. So quickly they asked the children to run. So they spent over three, four, five hours hiding in the bush. And then at the point when they were tired, they felt that the people have left. So uh, they decided to come out. And so that was where they got Esther and some other four for that day. But the rest didn't come out, so they couldn't get them. So the police have to ask them to produce those ones and the next day at the police station. Do you know how Esther felt when 
she was hiding? Has she ever shared any of her feelings about what was going on? Because that's, that's a long time for a little kid to be hiding in a bush. So at, at that time, they, she wasn't so sure uh, what was happening because they have told them stories uh, about the police uh, and whoever was coming to rescue them. So the stories would always be like, those are rather the people who are coming to hurt them. Uh, yes, so they were not sure whether um, it was safer for them to come out or it was safer for them to rather be in the bush. So they just have to obey what their masters have asked them to do. Um, so even at the point where they were rescued, uh, they didn't know what was happening to them. So the children have been brainwashed by their captors in thinking that if anybody ever comes to offer them help, that that person will hurt them. And so Esther's survival instincts kick in and she is hiding in the bush, waiting actually for IJM to leave. Eventually she makes the decision to return to the kitchen to do her work. Again, here's IJM's investigator, Peter. When Jeffrey identified them to us, she was also picked and taken to the shore taken to the show. You know, the plan was that if a child is found, it's handed to the aftercare people. Police took them from the community, sent them to the where the boats are kept at the shore, and aftercare people take care of them. So she was also, she was one of the people we identified. I saw her at the kitchen side where the smoking was happening, and she was picked by the police and then handed over to aftercare people. Did she come with the police willingly, or was she scared? She, she was scared. How do you know she was scared? That almost all the children are scared, because they have been told. I think the bootmaster have, have indoctrinated them already about people taking children from underwater. And, and so they, they see as enemies. So they are unwillingly to follow us, but because some do not even want to go. Their parents have to tell them they should go before they go. And then under her own free will, Esther makes the decision that she probably did not understand the ramifications of. She made the decision to walk to the IJM rescue boat. This should be the point in our podcast where the happy music plays and we begin to clap, but that is not the reality of Esther's story at this point. Here's Perpetual. But the story I heard, I had from the team that was on the boat was that she cried all through. And then when she got to the processing center, when we received her, uh, it was the same story. She was gloomy the whole evening. Um, she cried. Why? Why would? Why would Esther be scared? Doesn't she know she's free? Again, Peter. At that time, she's not. She doesn't know. At that time, they don't know. What does she There's, know? Uh, what they know is uh where strangers are in town to pick them away. And that is, that is what they know. Uh, people, just people like, people that they don't know are in town to pick them. And so they don't know where they are taking them to. So that is why they show resistance and willingness to cooperate with us. And are there social workers on the boat? Yeah, there okay. are social workers on the so boat. So what kind of things are the social workers on the boat saying to Esther to try and to try and soothe her. Together with him and other people, they come then to become. Yeah. They tell them to, that we are there to rescue them. We are there then to, we are there to take them from the slavery, the suffering, the pain that they're going through. And that is what they tell them. Okay. So then when they get off the boat, 
they go to, what, where's the first place they go to? Uh, we send them to when we get out, when they get in the boat, we drive on the water. It takes us about 40 minutes to get out of the water. So what the plan is that we have a vehicle. You know, normally, if we pick them on the boat, we separate them. Victims are kept on the boat, and suspects are also kept in different boats. We ensure that they don't come to close, or they don't come together. So at the shore, we have a, a place for the victim's car involving the Esther, including the Esther. We also have a suspect's car at different place. So out of the water, aftercare people will manage them into a vehicle and send them to a shelter. Just to be clear, when they actually leave the island, there are two boats. One is carrying Esther and the other children. The other boat is carrying the slave owners. After a 14-minute ride and the boats land, Esther and the other children are transported to a safe and secure location, and the police handle her captors. They arrested one, the chief owner. So he was arrested. The second person that we needed, we should have arrested. The investigator said we should hold on. So we arrested the boatmaster, the one, the chief who owned up. We arrested him and brought him to the shore, to the community where the police station was. And he was detained for an investigation. And what were, what was the result of that investigation? Uh, the case, currently, uh, the docket has been, you know, we've, they forwarded the docket to Attorney General for advice. The docket has been brought now for them to be charged for court. He's not the only person. Uh, there was a, a, a middle woman who sent these children from a community in the, at the south here. She was, at the time of the rescue, she was there in the community. So she was also arrested. So the court is, uh, the state attorney is saying that they should be charged for, for, for trial. Uh, so that is about to be done. And what, is, what charges have been brought against them? Trafficking case, conspiracy and trafficking. What will happen if they are, what will happen if they're convicted? Oh, they'll be, if they are convicted, if they are, they, they, are, they are convicted, they'll be jailed more than five years. We are still awaiting word of that conviction and we'll let you know when we know. And now there are two narratives. Because we are both celebrating the freedom of Esther and the children that are with her, we are also celebrating the fact that justice is being served. Arrests are being made. People are going to jail because of the crime. Yet we also have this girl who is scared and feeling a lot of emotion. I asked Esther how she felt when she got off the boat. When you got off the boat, um, what happened there? Fabi, I cried. Do you know why you cried? Look at that, Fabi. Because I didn't see my mother. To me, this is the hardest part of her story. Because in a moment that should have been joyful, in a moment that should have been filled with excitement that she was finally free, this child was full of deep, deep sorrow because she missed her family. As a person of faith, this is actually the point in Esther's story where despite the freedom and despite the rescue and despite the excitement and despite the great work of IJM and the bravery of Jeffrey and the incredible tenacity of the local Ghana police, despite all of those things, because she is just still so sad, I begin to ask a very fundamental question 
about all of this, and that is, where is God? I talked to Leo about that. You'll remember that Leo is the director of advocacy in IJM Ghana, but in addition, he is also a pastor. And I just wanted to talk to a pastor about this. You live and witness some really intense darkness, and you see outside of the beauty of Ghana, the work that you're a part of with IJM, you must see some really difficult things. First of all, is that accurate and fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you, how does that change, or has it changed your view of God as a result of seeing those things? Well, um, so I, I, I will look at it in two ways. The first way is that um, it has really helped me to believe in God more and be more vulnerable to Him, especially with the kind of work we're doing. We, we're doing, a, um, we're trying to do something for God in the midst and within communities that um, in terms of spirituality really do not believe in God and are into all other things that happen in the dark world. And so we work in communities where the people there uh, believe in other gods and those gods are meant to often cause harm and provide protection for these people. So that's why we as an organization, we believe so much in spiritual uh, formation and we believe that God is our defender and that God is the one that protects us. The other component is that going into uh, some of these communities and doing this work even at the national level and, and seeing how Christians, we Christians, seeing how church leaders, people that are evangelists, seeing how people that have power to call the shot, seeing how people that have the ability to bring freedom and justice to the poor, to the vulnerable, to the oppressed, are not using their power for that, but they are rather using their power to facilitate oppression. That is heartbreaking. Because you would see someone who is a church leader mm-hmm enslaving a child, exploiting a child. The church basically does not prioritize justice. The church to a large extent has become quite self-seeking and rather looking at the ecstasy of how people will see the church to be. Mm. And hard to wrap your head around that. (laughs) Of justice is rather not even spoken about or not prioritized. And that is heartbreaking. Yeah, it is heartbreaking. Um, Speaking of heartbreaking, as we've been hearing and spending time in Esther's story and just really hearing about the depth of her suffering while she was on the island um, and really the the difficulty that she is even having after the island in kind of reassimilating into the world, it is very, very hard not to wonder where God is in the midst of such suffering. Um, and so the question is, where is God in the midst of that suffering? Well, God is right there uh, in the midst of those suffering. Um, often the difficulty is we as human beings and as Christians availing ourselves to be used by God to be an extension of his love to those that have been oppressed and to those that are suffering. 
that's always the difficulty. And so the onus is on us for us to be willing and for us to be vulnerable, to avail ourselves, to be an extension of God's love to these people that are suffering. And of course, the other issue that comes in is that we must try as much as possible uh, to sort of create that kind of awareness and sort of like flip the narrative because the issue about justice is not really big within our church setting here in Ghana. Um, I mean, we, we are much more interested in issues that will bring changes to ourselves personally compared to being an extension of Christ's love to others. And so many people feel that, well, she's not my child. She's not my daughter. She doesn't bear my name. I mean, she, she doesn't bear my reputation, so it has nothing to do with me. Right. And so people sort of like distance themselves away from such situation instead of availing themselves to be used by God to be a blessing to such people. Yeah. So that's always the contrast and the challenge that we face. Mm. Um, it is within, I think this is theologically correct, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like it is within the purview of God to just in the snap of a finger and the blink of an eye just end slavery. Yet that's not happening. So, or not happening in terms of just it's being eradicated. What do you make of uh, how God is working to end slavery uh, in the world today? Yeah, I think that God is, is working mightily uh, to end slavery, just like we saw him do um, in the time of old with the people of Israelites and Moses. I mean, it just didn't happen like an event, it took a process of time. And, and also it took the willingness of his people uh, to be used by him to bring an end to the problem. And it's the same way God is working through you, myself, and everyone watching this video, um, God is gonna use you and I to bring an end to slavery in this world. So God is working. All we have to do is to just avail ourselves and be willing for him to use us. We must be his hands, we must be his feet, we must be his feet to lead us in bringing freedom to the children and to the many that have been enslaved. So for me, God is working. We've seen churches rising up and talking about justice, bringing in resources. We've seen um, the global or the international community rising up. The international community is actually speaking about it and prioritizing it as part of the sustainable development goals. That is God working behind the scenes right. uh, to bring an end to slavery. Uh, we've seen um, a number of non-governmental organizations prioritizing issues of, um, of human trafficking. We've seen government agencies, law enforcement agencies rising up to do something that a problem. So it tells me that God is working through his people to bring an end to slavery. He is doing it. But all of us must be willing to be used by him. In the midst of all the risk, we must avail ourselves to be used by him to bring an end to the problem in our lifetime. Leo's wisdom has echoed in me because when it is so easy to just say, where is God? To see a child who is crying and looking for her mother, to see children who are still on the lake, right? This isn't over. There are still slaves in the world. It is so easy to go, God, where are you? Yet we look around and we see that God is working in the people who are ending slavery. God is working in the hearts and minds of all of the individuals who are caring for these children, who are going and finding and rescuing and for all those that support IJM. In this moment, I would be remiss if I did not ask you to join us in supporting the work of IJM. This whole podcast has never been designed to be a commercial. 
But the work of IJM is very real, and the opportunity that we have to go and rescue more children is very real. I would ask you to go to IJM.org forward slash rescue dash children to learn more about that and to, quite frankly, leverage your life, leverage what you have been given to serve those and to go find the Esters that are still awaiting rescue. And now we'll close this portion of Esther's story, where we left her. She was off the boat, and she was looking for her mom. But that is not where the work of IJM ends. Because if you just rescue a child and then set them free into the world, they will be re-trafficked. What happens now is truly miraculous. Esther goes to a secure location and begins the process of aftercare. Yeah, I, I, my first interaction with her was actually at the direct interaction, was actually at the processing center. This is Joshua, another IJM investigator in Ghana. That was probably about five or six hours after the rescue, um, because at, at that point in time, our aftercare team takes them through, you know, uh, assessments, uh, making sure that they have uh, new clothes, um, medicals, and different things of that nature. And so shortly after that, uh, we were able to interact. Uh, and that's when you really kind of saw, saw that difference. Um, now, there was definitely a language barrier uh, for me and her, but one of our aftercare staff was able to help with some just general conversation. And she was open, and she was willing to talk, which was, um, which was quite neat. What kind of assessments are they doing in those moments? What things are they checking for and confirming when a child kind of goes through processing? Yeah, so uh, within the first couple hours, it's, it's more of a, a visual and kind of small verbal assessment. So visually, we want to assess that there's no major injury. Um, and then verbally, we want to get some just general information from them. And then we move them through the process of, you know, actually getting, uh, getting a bath. Um, if haircuts are needed, getting a haircut. Uh, changing them into new clothes, um, and obviously making sure that they have, uh, you know, they have food, and, and they've been taken care of in that direction. Interesting. What does that do for a child? I, I'm curious. The haircut, bath, the new clothes, besides just the obvious uh, needs, just like addressing needs of 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 what those things do. Um, it's done fairly early in the process of, of them being processed. What, what does that do for them and what do you see in them as they start to receive this kind of attention and care and grooming that they really haven't probably for many years? Well, I think it's just a new person. Let's hear about our new person, Esther, from Perpetual. And so by the next morning, uh, she was all smiles. And before we even uh, got to interact with them, she was all over the shelter. Because where we did their processing is actually a shelter. Um, she was all over, went to the kitchen to help the kitchen staff to prepare breakfast. Uh, yeah, because she was kind of relaxed by the morning. How have you seen God working in and through Esther's story and her life? Yeah, so... Um, Esther, the first time we met her when she was rescued, um, she was really, really, really traumatized. Um, she cried most part of that first night. She wouldn't open up to anybody. Uh, but by the second, third day, uh, based on the interactions that we, we had with her, um, her, words, her words that she spoke 
kind of gave me an understanding that um, God was doing something with her. Because right from that point, she started talking about the praying even for the team, um, telling us how much she, she knows that even though things are difficult for her, having been out, having been rescued, now understanding what the issues are, uh, how she feels her life would be better. Um, over the year, I think we've done over a year, getting to a year and a half now, I think she's uh, progressively shown uh, that um, uh, things could be better for her. She's, she's improved greatly uh, in various aspects of her life. Yeah. On our next episode, the final episode of the Esther series, we hear about her life now and we dig in to some of the complexities that are just not resolved. The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission, again, to support the work of IJM and really to leverage your life for the sake of all the children that are still on the island. Please go to ijm.org forward slash rescue dash children. That's rescue dash children. All the links are in the show notes. On behalf of my colleagues at IJM, as well as Esther, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. Yeah.